and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we will talk about the long-awaited so-called integrated review of the UK's defence, security, development and foreign policy, which was finally published and we will try to make sense of what's in it, what it means for the UK, what it tells us about the world, and what it means for the relationship between the UK and Europeans going forward. And to help us make sense of this report, I am absolutely thrilled to mention, uh, to welcome uh, an ECFR council member, Joe Johnson, who is a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, and among many other positions, is chairman of TES Global. He was a British member of parliament between 2010 and 2019, held a a number of really important ministerial offices in the last three conservative governments, um, including as uh, attending the cabinet as Minister of State for University Science, Research and Innovation, but also playing a very important role in thinking about the future of Britain, um, including writing one of the Conservative manifestos during that period. Um, Joe is also somebody who has been involved with a lot of the themes of the review in his pre-parliamentary life. I first met him when he was working for the Financial Times as its correspondent in India. So, Joe, this integrated review is meant to tell us what's going to happen to British foreign policy after Brexit. It contains the much vaunted phrase global Britain, which has been bandied around for many uh, years now. Do we now know what global Britain means? Well, good morning, Mark, and thanks very much for having me on the ECFR uh, weekly podcast. This is the first big sort of articulation of what global Britain means. And that is the really one of the primary roles of this review. Um, there's been a lot of uh, skepticism about global Britain. Is it just an empty slogan? What does it actually mean in, in, in reality? And this is a substantial uh, government document, 115 odd pages that really tries to bring this idea to life. And I think it's important to understand the context for that, because you know, this is really the government answering the big question or trying to answer the big question, which is, what is Britain's role in the world going to be post-Brexit? So that's the first big sort of conceptual building block of this report, is to try and answer that question. We've now got the EU-UK free trade agreement in place since the start of this year, which has sort of freed up the government to publish this kind of document that takes the broader view now and tries to look at what Britain's place in the world is going to be. The second sort of contextual piece for this report is, is, and there's a clue to this, in the title, um, it's called an integrated review. Now, what on earth is an integrated review? Well, this speaks to the the growing sense across Whitehall that actually predates well, it doesn't predate Brexit because it was first articulated in around 2018 that there needed to be a deeper integration across government. There was first recognised, yeah, the fusion doctrine. This idea that the government needed to have a capacity for much faster decision making and more coherent policy making and implementation that brings together all these different bits of our machine, bringing together defence diplomacy, development, our intelligence services and security services, as well as our trade and investment promotion 
arms. So this is that's the idea of the integrated review, the sense that other countries are already acting in a much more integrated way, blurring the boundaries between different capabilities. And Britain needed to wake up to this to this uh, growing trend. So that's the second sort of building block of this report. And then the third is clearly that we're in a new political environment. Um, we've had a change of presidency um, in the White House, which has enabled this government, which is by instinct extremely uh, outward-looking, uh, liberal, um, to, to emphasize aspects of Britain's sort of global perspective that under the Trump administration were perhaps a bit shrouded. And I, and I mean there a sort of a full-throated uh, embrace of uh, the environmental and climate change and biodiversity agendas, the, a, a more full-throated embrace of, of, bi, of multilateralism, um, and of the recognition that you know, the, the world needs to be collaborative and cooperative if we're going to address these big challenges that we face together. So that's, I think, the, the context for this review, Mark. Great. You um, mentioned these three elements, conceptual, integrated, and um, uh, this kind of new political environment. Yeah. I mean, the, the review is, is very striking um, for me as a former science minister, um, a position I held under, under three different prime ministers, under David Cameron, Theresa May, and, and the current prime minister, was the very, very strong emphasis on technology and science as the underpinning of our future competitiveness as a country. This was very sort of Wilsonian, white heat of technology. It was very, it was very French. For, for non-Brits, I think it's Harold Wilson you're referring to rather than Woodrow Wilson. The, uh, I said Harold Wilson, didn't I? What did I say? No, Wilson. you said Wilsonian, but Wilsonian <laughs> can, can have a different uh, implication. Yes, no, of course, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I should have been clearer. Um, and, you know, the really strong sense running through this document that it's our technological capacities as a country that are going to be almost as important as, as or, or even more important um, than the military hardware that we can bring to bear uh, in competition with, with other countries. So this is a really fundamental positioning of science and technology at the very heart of Britain's strategy to consolidate and enhance its national power and ability to, uh, and its ability to help uh, influence the world beyond its borders. So that I think was for me by far and away the most the most striking element. It was the government's very first priority, very first objective of this strategic review was to sustain our strategic advantage through science and technology, and to integrate science and science and technology as an integral element of our national security and international policy. So for me, that was a hugely important statement. It I think it's really important. I think there are a lot of really interesting tensions between some of the, the goals of this review, many of which come out um, around the idea of China, which is, I, I think, a, a topic you've been thinking a lot about recently. I, you've just published a, a big report on the China question. Yeah, that's right, Mark. I did. I, I put a, a, a big report out, a 100-page report out last week for Harvard and King's on UK-China research and education relations. And that's because the pace of change um, in our relationship with China is simply breathtaking. 
On its current trajectory, China is set to overtake the US to become both the world's biggest spender on R&D, probably next year, and to become the UK's most significant research partner. In, in the space of less than a decade, China has gone from being the UK's ninth most significant, ninth, ninth most important research partner to our second most important research partner. It accounts for about 11% of all of our collaborative science uh, output compared to 19% for the US, UK uh, share of our total output. But China is growing so fast that we can easily envisage China taking the number one spot from the US um, within a few years' time. Now, given the context of rising geopolitical tensions and increasing hawkishness towards China in the Conservative Party, but also beyond the Conservative Party, we urgently need to put in place a framework for this key UK-China research relationship so that, it can un so that it can withstand what may well be uh, rising geopolitical tensions um, in the months and years ahead. We need to do a much better job of measuring, managing, and mitigating risks that are at present very poorly understood and poorly monitored. Because that sounds great, um, very soothing words about managing these things. But, you know, there is a country which had an even more uh, integrated science relationship with China than us, and that was the United States of America. And that has gone through a tectonic shift over the last couple of years as um, the US has embarked on what they call an all of society um, approach to manage the risks of China. And, the, you know, we heard this phrase decoupling a lot in lots of different contexts for, for a big period of time. But the, the sharp edge of decoupling has been exactly in this area of science and technology, where a lot of leading American universities are having to break off their relationships with, with Chinese um, institutions. Scientists who are ethnically Chinese in America have been subject to, to all sorts of loyalty tests. Some of them have lost their jobs, um, have got in trouble for, for for doing joint projects on cancer and other things, which, you know, a long way away from the sort of traditional concerns about, about hacking and IP theft. How does that change this the situation for the UK because it, I mean I suppose the the um traditional British way is, is the sort of cakeist strategy to try and maintain close relationships with both China and America our two biggest partners on on these issues but to what extent are big British universities and companies going to have to choose you're absolutely right I mean there is a there is a tendency to think about the China question in a binary way as if there isn't a possible middle ground between you know, what, what is being now characterized as the naive embrace of the sort of George Osborne, David Cameron era, when we spoke of a, a golden era uh, towards China, on the one hand, and defiant disengagement and sort of abrupt decoupling um, on the other. But neither of those outcomes, neither of those paths is likely to be in the, in the UK national interest. And we do need to take a balanced approach. It's not as if, after all, that we only trade with democracies or that we only talk to democracies. If we, if we did that, we'd have a very small um, export basket. You know, we have to be big enough to be able to recognize that there are different political systems out there and that we benefit ourselves and we help to improve global understanding by working with other countries rather than uh, seeking to isolate ourselves from them. China is simultaneously across various policy areas a cooperation partner 
with which the UK has very closely aligned objectives. It's a negotiating partner with which we need to find a balance of interests, and it's an economic competitor, as we've just been discussing, in the pursuit of technological leadership. It's obviously, of course, as many people are now realizing in light of our growing understanding of what's going on with the Uyghurs, a systemic rival promoting alternative models of governance and responsible for extreme violations of human rights on, on a massive scale. But we need a, a flexible and pragmatic whole of government approach that enables us to have a principled defense of, of both our interests and our values. As far as the, the research relationship goes, we'd be extraordinarily disadvantaged if we decided that we did not want to collaborate in R&D with China. It is going to be the world's biggest spender on R&D next year, without question. And our ability to tackle global challenges like climate change, biodiversity, how to handle the next round of pandemics that will inevitably come will be severely diminished if we're not working in a collaborative way with China on these questions. And if you think about our research relationship, it generates enormously uh, strong uh, research. Um, there is a way of measuring the, the quality and the impact of research, and that's to look at how, how, how often papers are cited in, in influential journals. It's a, crude, it's a crude but reasonably good method of doing so. And Sino, the quality of this joint Sino-British research that has been growing so rapidly in, in, in volumes is extremely high according to these measures of impact. And it's increasingly underpinning British research capabilities in key areas. And the research that we published last week found that there are now no fewer than 20 subject categories in which collaborations with China account for more than 20% of the UK's high-impact research. And in three key subject areas, very big areas as well, automation and control systems, telecommunications, and materials science and ceramics, these collaborations between the UK and China represent more than 30% of the UK's highest impact research output. So this extraordinary degree of integration, to my mind, makes any idea of decoupling from China simply unviable and highly unlikely to be in the national interest. But, but what it, of course, does also show is that there's a very clear need for a strategic approach to research collaboration that's capable of mitigating real risks that, are, that arise in this kind of relationship with a after all, a, a government that's authoritarian, sort of almost neo-totalitarian neo in many ways. Um, how do you, because how do you see the, because one of the important parts of the review on these issues is this idea of regulation and regulatory environment and, and how we uh, deal with that. And there's a lot of emphasis on cooperating with like-minded countries on that. And it blends into this a big thought about the the tilt towards the Indo-Pacific. How do you see the UK operating in that sort of context? Because um, we have just left the, the European Union and we'll talk about that um, afterwards. But um, uh, one of the, the big areas where the EU is definitely a superpower is in this area of regulation, particularly around data and other issues. How, what's the, the sort of vision for global Britain um, in terms of data and norms around technology and regulation? Yes, I mean, I do think the, the UK on its own and you know, individual companies and institutions contracting with China on their own will, will find it harder to put in place 
frameworks, standards for relationships that govern this engagement that are robust and can withstand pressure from what will, what will after all be you know, soon the world's biggest economy. So it, it does make sense to work with like-minded countries, um, institutions within them, to try and find common approaches and common sets of standards for engaging with China. And when I was thinking about the, the research relationship, um, last week, when individual institutions, individual universities, you know, are hard pressed on their own to sort of make sure that they've got the right sort of governance in place for contracts with Chinese funding partners, for example, they would benefit tremendously from, first of all, a common contractual approach within the UK across all of these institutions. And then secondly, um, they would benefit if UK regulators and funders worked with funders in other Western liberal democracies to create this kind of common approach and common set of standards. And this approach, which, would, which I think would be eminently achievable on the research side of things, could be replicated in other areas. Could you talk a bit more about the, the Indo-Pacific tilt, which is one of the big uh, slogans associated with the integrated review? I mean, you spent a long time living in India, and I remember you telling me uh, when I was trying to understand how Europeans and the UK were viewed in India, that we loomed a lot smaller in the Indian imaginaire than, than we thought we would. What does a kind of Indo-Pacific tilt mean in uh, in 2021? Well, you're right. We have been uh, losing relevance, like I say, we being the UK um, in India over the last two decades. And you can see this particularly in the trade relationship, where we've gone from being the second most important trading partner for India in 1999, at the turn of the millennium, to you know, roughly its 15th or 16th most important now. Now, trade has been rising in absolute terms, but not nearly as rapidly as India's overall uh, trade basket. So we've been losing market share, and we've been sort of slipping down the rankings of India's, of India's trading partners. That was in the context of Britain as a member of the EU. At the same time, other EU uh, members outperformed us and did well within the trading context provided by the EU. France and Germany saw their position uh, rise up India's rankings of trading partners. We did less well in that context because India was relatively closed in the areas where we were most competitive, our most competitive financial services, business services, legal services and so on, and relatively open in the areas where we were less competitive and those other economies were more competitive in the areas of sort of manufacturing, civil engineering, construction services, and so on. So the framework for trade with India, which is going to be an extremely important economy, was not massively positive. The terms of trade were not massively positive for us. The UK, thanks to Brexit, is in a position to negotiate bilateral trade agreements of its own with India. There is feverish speculation that there will be some kind of enhanced trade partnership announced in coming weeks. I don't think this will represent a full trade agreement, but it will be sort of, I think, an early harvest towards that ultimate objective if we can ever get there. And India is, is clearly a very important priority for the government, probably the most important um, trade priority for the government after the US and after and the agreements that we've already rolled over with, with Japan. Um, just because if we're putting up barriers with, the, with our EU partners, with, the, with our exit from the single market and the difficulties facing uh, many of our exporters into the EU, and if 
you know, relations with China and is if geopolitical tensions with China are leading are leading to a greater need for greater resilience and and increased sort of redundancy in supply chains, the relationship with India is going to rise up the up the priority list. So it's an extremely important relationship, and the government's putting a lot of effort into achieving this closer relationship with India. And you'll see this next month when the Prime Minister and, and other ministers head out there. And alongside the, the relationship with India, there's talk about trying to get partner status at ASEAN, joining the regional uh, trading uh, uh, block through the CPTPP, and also talk of, of a kind of bigger military role in the Indo-Pacific. How uh, important do you think the UK can be in the Indo-Pacific mil- in military and security terms? I think from the Indian point of view, now, that has certainly changed. The deterioration in India's relations with China have certainly changed their outlook on the sort of the utility of partners like the UK. Now, we're not a front-ranked military ally like, uh, like the US. We're not providing that kind of security comfort. But you know, at the margins, knowing that there is a British military presence in the, in, in the Indo-Pacific is going to be a comfort to India. They want Britain to be... Uh, supportive um, of it in its quest for you know an equal standing with China in in Asia, and you know our support for things like India's membership of the UN and so on are extremely important to to India in that respect. Member of the Security Council, did I say Security Council? Yeah, yeah. So um, one other sort of conceptual question, and then I, I'd like to. To pivot to talking a bit, a bit about Europe, which is obviously um, uh, going to be a, a, a lot of interest to our listeners. But one of the, the big conceptual changes seems to be introducing the idea of sovereignty as a, a sort of key pillar alongside prosperity and security. Um, what does that mean in practical terms? And how does it relate to this internationalism that you were talking about earlier on um, when you uh, talked about the sort of um, new political context for for the review? Well, sovereignty as as an idea was the principal motivation behind, for for many of the key figures in the Brexit campaign, was was the principal driver for their passion for Brexit. Um, You know, the idea that Britain needed to be more in control of its of its rulemaking and and less bound by less bound by you know decisions that were made um, potentially under qualified majority voting rules in in in, in Brussels. So that was a that was probably the single most important driver, uh, sort of ideological driver of the Brexit um, of the Brexit movement. Obviously, there were lots of other factors at play as well, um, the impact of globalization, the effects of immigration and so on. But sovereignty was absolutely critical to it. And clearly now that's, that's leading um, the proponents of Brexit to seek to demonstrate that we are sovereign. And that will lead the government to be looking actively for beneficial ways in which Britain can demonstrate that it can regulate and legislate in its, in its national interest in a way that perhaps differs from how it might otherwise have been able, how, how, how matters might have otherwise progressed under the, under, had we remained members of the EU. For example, you know, take financial services. We haven't been granted equivalence in many areas of financial services policy by, uh, the, by the European Commission. That's going to increase the likelihood that Britain doesn't hang around 
too long waiting for it and moves to diverge and to seek competitiveness um, in new areas of activity in, in, finance, in fintech, in um, green finance, in changing the way it regulates market listings. Um, as we've seen recently in government reviews, such as the Hill Review of listing rules on the stock exchange or the Khalifa Review of fintech, you know, the government is going to be actively looking for ways in which we can regulate differently. And that's what we mean by sovereignty. Okay. So how does all of this come together in terms of um, the vision for how Britain will relate to, to the European Union after Brexit? We've seen a lot of tensions um, uh, in terms of how Brussels and uh, London deal with each other, refusal to grant diplomatic status to the to the EU ambassador in London and other things like that, which show a kind of reluctance to deal with the EU um, as a whole. Um, is that um, going to be the sort of core idea of Global Britain, treating um, Europe as if the European Union isn't there and trying to build up uh, deeper bilateral relationships with the big member states like France and Germany um, and uh, rooting around Brussels? Or is there a kind of uh, vision of how these different levels relate to one another? Well, that's an, that's an interesting question. I, I don't think the, the strategy is to pretend that there isn't a European Union and that there are only member states. I mean, that would be to fly in the face of reality. I think the government you know, is dealing with the world as it is. Um, I think we want very close relations with our European partners, and that includes obviously the institutions of the European Union. Um, I think the year hasn't got off to an easy start, far from it. It's been a very fraught first uh, two and a half months um, of the new relationship, uh, you know, rise over the operation of the uh, protocol um, in, in, in Northern Ireland, uh, rise over vaccine deployment, uh, small rise over the status of the EU representative. Um, and so on. I mean, it is a it is a tricky relationship, and it is important that we remember that we've got so many interests that we have in common, and that we mustn't allow these 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 arguments um, to to distract from the much bigger the much bigger issues we all face. You know, and as we head in, as we head into uh, COP in the in the autumn, I'm sure we will be reminded of those much bigger issues that we have in common. And what do you think is realistically going to be possible in terms of the the relationship around foreign security uh, global issues because um you know immediately after brexit there were a lot of debates in different european capitals and in brussels about having some sort of institutional framework um some people uh in the british foreign policy establishment were hoping to 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 build some different ways where britain could still um, have a, a kind of semi-seat at some of the, the tables of, of European discussions, at least around sanctions policy and some of the other areas where Britain have been really, really active. Uh, Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel have both talked about the idea of a European Security Council. But when it came to the negotiations, the British government decided that it didn't want to have a, a, a discussion around foreign and security policy. So there is no sort of institutional framework. Um, and as you say, when all these other tensions are going on, it's quite difficult to see um, how one could build something very ambitious. But at the same time, the tyranny of events is going to force Europeans and Brits to to talk about everything from Iran to Russia to the to China uh, to climate change. How, how do you think um, 
you know, if we look at the, you know, a slightly longer term perspective where we'll be in five or 10 years time, what do you think will be the, the, the way that this relationship um, is, is structured? And well, I think that's a critical question. And I do, uh, you know, I do feel that there's been a, a, a failure of strategy on the EU's part to think about the, the medium and long term relationship that it wants with the, with the UK. Um, you know, there's been su- such focus on the terms of our of our exit and, and the, the nature of our of our relationship to the single market in particular that we haven't really thought about those. The, it doesn't really look as though the the EU has been giving proper thought to that a medium to long term strategic relationship with the UK. And it and it is time, um, perhaps not in the middle of the of the vaccine row, but it but it but it will soon be time for us to be having those those serious conversations. Okay, we'll definitely come back to it. Thanks a lot, Joe, for for talking us through the integrated review and for looking at some of the the big challenges facing the UK as it tries to make sense of what global Britain means. We've got one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I've been thinking very hard about um, China and foreign technology and particularly UK technology. So I would recommend a book by uh, William Hannas um, and Didi Tatlow called China's Quest for Foreign Technology. And it's an interesting study of how these sort of uh, quite aggressive knowledge transfer activities that China has been engaged in over the past sort of, 20, 30 years, you know, hardly new. We've seen them many times over history. Uh, you know, Britain feared losing technological edge to uh, France and Prussia following the Industrial Revolution. We saw similar concerns over the rise of Japan and South Korea um, following the Second World War. And we're now seeing it on a much bigger scale um, with China. Technology has always been a contested battlefield in which there are tensions between uh, being open and losing your and losing your edge, being open and collaborative and losing your edge in science and technology. And this is an eternal theme, and it's fascinating now to watch it play out on this epic scale um, with China today. Great. So uh, thanks for that. We'll also, so we'll put up links to, to that on the, our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. We'll also put a link on that to the text of the famous integrated review and to Joe Johnson's report on the China question. We also have commentary on our website from Nick Whitney about the integrated review, which I uh, recommend uh, as well once it's up. Um, and uh, we very much hope that you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you have, please let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours, but above all, hopefully by giving us a positive review and a five-star rating on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on. It makes a big difference and helps drive traffic towards the podcast. For now, from Joe Johnson and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Chris Eichberger. Mm-hmm.